Chapter Four of Leatherface: A Tale of Old Flanders. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Dion Johns, Salt Lake City, Utah. Leatherface: A Tale of Old Flanders by Baroness Orksey. Chapter Four: Justice. Don Ramon de Linea was one of the last to leave the townhouse. He was on duty until all the Spanish officers of state had left the building, and it was long past midnight before he wended his way through the narrow streets of the city till he reached the house of the high bailiff in the Neustrat, not far from the new bridge the outward appearance of the house suggested that most of its occupants were abed although there was a light in one of the windows on the ground floor and through the uncurtained casement don ramon caught sight of the high bailiff and his two sons sitting together over a final cup of wine all the pent-up wrath against mark van Rijk, which ramon had been forced to keep in check under the eye of signor de vargas gave itself vent now in a comprehensive curse and forgetting every code of decency toward his host and hostess he went up to the front door and gave the heavy oak panels a series of violent kicks with his boot hey there he shouted roughly open you confounded louts what manners are these to close your doors against the soldiers of the king he had not finished swearing when the serving man's shuffling footsteps were heard crossing the tiled hall the next moment there was a great rattle of bolts being drawn and chains being unhung whereupon don ramon still impatient and wrathful gave a final kick to the door and since pierre had already lifted the latch it flew open and nearly knocked the poor man down with its weight curse you all for a set of lazy louts shouted don ramon at the top of his voice here fellow he added flinging himself into a chair take off my boots and cloak he held out his leg and pierre dutiful and obedient took off the long boots of untanned leather which protected the slashed shoes and silk trunk hose beneath against the mud of the streets where is your master queried the spaniard roughly in the dining hall so please you senor replied the man and my men they went to the tavern over the way about an hour ago after they had their supper and they have not yet returned they are making merry there senor added old pierre somewhat wistfully and as if in direct confirmation of the man's words there came from the tavern on the opposite side of the street a deafening noise of wild hilarity the peace of the night was broken and made hideous by hoarse shouts and laughter a deafening crash as of broken glass all intermixed with a bibulous song sung out of tune 
in a chorus of male voices and the clapping of empty mugs against wooden tables don ramon cursed again but this time under his breath the order had gone forth recently from the lieutenant-governor himself that the spanish troops quartered in flemish cities were to behave themselves in a sober and becoming manner the tavern of the three weavers being situated just opposite the house of the high bailiff it was more than likely that the latter would take it upon himself to complain of the ribaldry and uproar which was disturbing his rest and as the high bailiff was in high favour just now a severe reprimand for don ramon might ensue which prospect did not appeal to him in the least for a moment he hesitated whether he would not go back across the road and order the men to be silent but as luck or fate would have it at that very moment the high bailiff opened the door of the dining-room and stepped out into the hall seeing the young spaniard standing there sullen and irresolute he bade him courteously to come and join him and his two sons in a tankard of wine don ramon accepted the invitation the spirit of quarrelsome fury still brooded within him and it was that spirit which made him wish to meet mark van ryck again and either provoke him into that quarrel which signor de vargas's timely intervention had prevented before or at any rate to annoy and humiliate him with those airs of masterfulness and superiority which the spaniards knew so well how to wield mark and lawrence greeted their father's guest with utmost politeness the former offered him a tankard of wine which don ramon pushed away so roughly that the wine was spilled over the floor and over mark van ryck's clothes whereupon the spaniard swore as was his wont and murmured something about a clumsy lout lawrence sitting at the opposite side of the table clenched his fist till the knuckles shone like ivory and the skin was so taut that it threatened to crack the blood rushed up to his cheeks and his eyes glowed with the fire of bitter resentment and of indignation not easily kept under control but mark ignored the insult his face expressed nothing but good-humoured indifference and a careless indulgence for the vagaries of a guest like one would feel for those of an irresponsible child as for the high bailiff he still beamed with amiability and the determination to please his spanish masters in every way that lay in his power we would ask you senor said lawrence after a slight pause during which he had made almost superhuman efforts to regain his self-control kindly to admonish the soldiery in the tavern yonder my mother is an invalid the noise that the men make is robbing her of sleep the men will not stay at the tavern much longer said don ramon haughtily 
they are entitled to a little amusement after their arduous watch at the town hall and madame van Rijk will exercise a little patience she will get to sleep within the hour and can lie abed a little longer to-morrow it is not so much the lateness of the hour senor here interposed the high bailiff urbanely noting with horror that his son was about to lose his temper neither i nor my sons would wish to interfere with the innocent pleasures of these brave men but then what is the pother about sirrah queried the spaniard with well-studied insolence only that murmured the unfortunate high bailiff diffidently only that there are only two women in charge of the tavern at this hour broke in mark quietly two young girls whose father was arrested this morning for attending a camp meeting outside the city the girls are timid and unprotected therefore we entreat that you senor do put a stop to the soldiers brawling and allow the tavern to be closed at this late hour of the night don ramon threw back his head and burst into loud and affected laughter by the mass monsieur he said i find you vastly amusing to be thus pleading for a pair of heretics did you perchance not know that to attend camp-meetings is punishable by death if people want to hear a sermon they should go to church where the true doctrine is preached nothing but rebellion and high treason are preached at those meetings we were pleading for two defenceless girls rejoined lawrence whose voice shook with suppressed passion even he dared not say anything more on the dangerous subject of religious controversy which don ramon had obviously brought forward with the wish to provoke a discussion lest an unguarded word brought disaster upon his house pshaw retorted don ramon roughly surely you would not begrudge those fine soldiers a little sport two pretty girls did you not say they were pretty are not to be found in every street of this confounded city and by the mass i feel the desire to go and have a look at those wenches myself he rose yawned and stretched lawrence was white with passion there was a glow of deadly hate in his eyes of fury that was almost maniacal with a mechanical gesture he tore at the ruff at his throat don ramon looked on him with contempt in his eyes and a malicious smile round his full lips he shrugged his shoulders and laughed softly ironically to himself the next moment lawrence unable to control himself had sprung to his feet he would have been at the other's throat but that mark who had been quietly watching him was just in time to seize him round the shoulders and thus to prevent murder from being done don ramon had not failed to notice lawrence's unreasoning rage nor the gesture which for one instant had threatened his own life but he showed not the slightest sign of fear the sarcastic laugh 
did not wholly die down on his lips, nor did the look of contempt fade out of his eyes. He looked on, quite unmoved, whilst Mark succeeded, if not in pacifying his brother, at least in forcing him back to his seat and regaining some semblance of control over himself. The high bailiff, white as a sheet, was holding out his hands in a pathetic and futile appeal to his son and to the Spaniard. Then, as Lawrence, overcome with the shame of his own impotence, threw himself half across the table and buried his face in his hands, Don Ramon said coldly, Your senseless rage has done you no good, my friend. After half a century, you Netherlanders have, it seems, yet to learn that it is not wise to threaten a Spanish gentleman, either by word or gesture. Perhaps I would have protected the two females in the tavern yonder from the brutality of my soldiery. Perhaps I wouldn't. I don't know. But now, since you chose to raise an insolent hand against me, I certainly will not raise a finger to save them from any outrage. I'll even countenance my men's behavior by my presence in the tavern. Understand? That is what you have gained by your impudence, both you and your brother, for with him too I have a score to settle for impudence that literally passes belief. If your father were not so well accredited as a good Catholic and a loyal subject of the king, I would. But enough of this. Let the lesson be a fruitful one. And you, Monsieur High Bailiff, and you are wise, will inculcate into your sons a clearer notion of respect, duty, and obedience toward their superiors. He nodded curtly to the high bailiff, took no further notice of Mark and Lawrence, but turned on his heel and went out of the room, slamming the door behind him. After he had gone, the three men remained silent for a while, the high bailiff, feeling deeply resentful against his son, would not trust himself to speak. Mark was leaning against the window sill and staring moodily out into the darkness. Lawrence still held his head buried in his hands. The Spaniard's loud voice was heard giving orders to Pierre. Then there came the sound of bolts being pushed back of the heavy oaken door groaning on its hinges, then the reclosing of the door and Pierre's shuffling footsteps crossing the hall. Lawrence rose and passed the back of his hand once or twice across his eyes, and to think, he murmured dully, that brutes such as that are allowed to live. Has God turned the light of his countenance quite away from us? He remained standing for a while, gazing out blankly before him, and with trembling fingers he traced intricate patterns upon the tabletop. Then, with a heavy sigh, he bade father and brother good night, and quietly went out of the room. Mark, said the high bailiff quickly, keep an eye on that hot-headed young ruffian. In his present state of mind, there's no knowing what he might do. Whereupon Mark, 
in his usual good-tempered indolent way also bade his father good-night and followed his brother out of the room the scene which met don ramon's eyes when he entered the tavern of the three weavers which was situate be it remembered almost opposite the house of the high bailiff of ghent was alas not an unusual one these days for five years now ever since the arrival of the duke of alva in the low countries as lieutenant-governor and captain-general of the forces the netherlander had protested with all the strength and the insistence at their command against the quartering of spanish troops upon the inhabitants of their free cities the practice was a flagrant violation of all the promises made to them by the king himself and an outrage against their charters and liberties which the king had sworn to respect but it also was a form of petty tyranny which commended itself specially to alva and to the spanish ministers and councillors of state who liked above all to humiliate these dutch and flemish free men and cow them into complete submission and silent acquiescence by every means which their cruel and tortuous minds could invent don ramon knew quite well that he could offer no greater insult to the high bailiff of ghent and to his sons or for the matter of that to the whole city than to allow his soldiery to behave in a scandalous and ribald manner in one of the well-accredited and well-conducted taverns of the town and to him this knowledge gave but additional zest to what otherwise would have been a tame adventure two women to bully and eight men to do it was not nearly as exciting as he could wish but that fool laurence van Rijk had to be punished and incidentally don ramon hoped that mark would feel that the punishment was meted out to him more than to his brother on the whole don ramon de linea felt as he entered the tap-room of the three weavers that the presence of the two van Rijks was all that he needed to make his enjoyment complete that the spanish provost and the six men under his command were already drunk there was no doubt some of them were sitting at a long trestle table sprawling across it lolling up against one another some singing scraps of bibulous songs others throwing coarse obscene jests across the table two men seemed to be on guard at the door whilst one and all were clamouring for more wine curse you you the provost was shouting at the top of his voice when don ramon entered the tap-room why don't you bring another bottle of wine two women were standing at the further end of the long low room close to the hearth they stood hand in hand as if in an endeavour to inculcate moral strength to one another the eldest of the two women might have been twenty-five years of age the other some few years younger their white faces and round dilated eyes showed the deathly fear 
which held them both in its grip. Obviously, the girls would have fled out of the tap-room long before this, and equally obviously the two men had been posted at the door in order to cut off their retreat. At sight of their captain, the men staggered to their feet. The provost passed the word of command, fearful lest the ribald attitude of his men brought severe censure, and worse, upon himself. He stood up as steadily, as uprightly as he could, but Don Ramon took little notice of him. He called peremptorily to the two girls, who, more frightened than ever now, still clung desperately to one another. "'Here, wench,' he said roughly, "'I want wine, the best you have, and a private room in which to sit.' "'At your service, senor,' murmured the elder of the two girls, almost inaudibly. "'What's your name?' he asked. "'Catrine, so please your magnificence. "'And yours?' "'Greta, at your service, magnificence,' whispered the girls one after the other, clinging one to the other, like two miserable atoms of humanity tossed about by the hard hand of fate. "'At my service, then, and quickly, too,' retorted Don Ramon curtly. "'Go down into the cellar, Katrine, and get me a fresh bottle of Rhine wine, the best your heretical father hath left behind, and you, Greta, show me to another room, and when presently I order you to kiss me, see that you do not do it with such a sour mouth, or by Our Lady I'll remember that your father must hang on the morrow, and that you are nothing better than a pair of heretics too. Now then, he added harshly, must I repeat the order? He had undone the buckle of his sword-belt, and was carrying his sheathed sword in his hand. He found it a splendid weapon for striking further terror into the hearts of the two girls, whose shrieks of pain and fear caused great hilarity amongst the soldiers. Don Ramon felt that if only Mark Van Ryck could have been there, all the wounds which that young malapert had dared to inflict upon the pride of a Spanish grandee would forthwith be healed. Indeed, Don Ramon enjoyed every incident of this exhilarating spectacle. For instance, when buxom Katrine had at last toddled down the steps into the cellar, the soldiers closed the trap-door upon her whereupon the provost, who had become very hilarious, shouted lustily, "'What ho! What are you louts doing there? His magnificence will be wanting the wine which he has ordered. If you lock the cellarer into her cellar, she'll come out presently as drunk as a Spanish lord.' "'All right, provost,' retorted one of the men. "'We'll let her out presently.' His magnificence won't have to wait for long. But can we levy a toll on her? Do you understand? Whenever the wench is ready to come out of prison. Oh, I understand, quoth the provost with a laugh. And Don Ramon laughed too. He was enjoying himself even more than he had hoped. He saw the other girl, Greta, turn almost gray with terror, and he felt that he was punishing 
Mark Van Ryck for every insolent word that he had uttered at the town hall, and Lawrence for every threatening gesture. He gave Greta a sharp prodding with the hilt of his sword. Now then, you Flemish slut, he said harshly, show me to your best parlor, and don't stand there gaping. Perforce she had to show him the way out of the public tapperage to the private room reserved for noble guests. Send one of your men to fetch the wench away in about half an hour, provost, called Don Ramon loudly over his shoulder. I shall have got tired of her by then. Loud laughter greeted this sally and a general clapping of mugs against the table. Greta, more dead than alive, nearly fell over the threshold. The private room was on the opposite side of the narrow tiled hall and was dimly lighted by a small iron lamp that hung from a beam of the ceiling above. The door was half open, and Greta pushed it open still further, and then stood aside to allow the senor captain to pass. "'Will your magnificence be pleased to walk in?' she whispered. Great tears were in her eyes. Don Ramon paused under the lintel of the door, and with a rough gesture pinched her cheek and ear. "'Not ugly for a Flemish heifer,' he said with a laugh. "'Come along, girl. Let's see if your heretical father hath taught you how to pay due respect to your superiors.' "'My humblest respect I do offer your magnificence,' said Greta, who was bravely trying to suppress her tears. "'Come, that's better,' he retorted, as he pushed the girl into the room and swaggered in behind her, closing the door after him. "'Now, Greta,' he added, as he threw himself into a chair and stretched his legs out before him, "'come and sit on my knee, and if I like the way you kiss me, why, my girl, there's no knowing what I might not do to please you. Come here, Greta, he reiterated more peremptorily, for the girl had retreated to a dark corner of the room and was cowering there just like a frightened dog. Come here, Greta, he called loudly for the third time, but Greta was much too frightened to move. With a savage oath, Don Ramon jumped to his feet and kicked the chair on which he had been sitting so that it flew with a loud clatter halfway across the room. Greta fell on her knees. Good Lord, deliver me, she murmured. Don Ramon seized her by her two hands that were clasped together in prayer. He dragged her up from her knees and toward the table which stood in the center of the small square room. Then he let her fall backwards against the table and laughed because she continued to pray to God to help her. As if God would take any notice of heretics and rebels and Netherlanders generally, he said with a sneer, stand up, girl, and go back to my men. I have had enough of you already. Ye gods, what a vile crowd these Netherlanders are. Go back into the tap-room, do you hear, girl, and see that you and your ugly sister entertain my men as you should. 
for if you don't and i hear of any psalm singing or simpering nonsense i'll hand you over to the inquisition as avowed heretics to-morrow but truly greta was by now almost paralyzed with fear she was no brave heroine of romance who could stand up before a tyrant and browbeat him by the very force of her character and personality she was but a mere wreckage of humanity whom any rough hand could send hopelessly adrift upon the sea of life her one refuge was her tears her only armor of defense her own utter helplessness but this helplessness which would appeal to the most elementary sense of chivalry had not the power to stir a single kind instinct in don ramon de linea it must be admitted that it would not have appealed to a single spaniard these days they were all bred in the one school which taught them from infancy an utter contempt for this subject race and a deadly hatred against the heretics and rebels of the low countries they were taught to look upon these people as little better than cattle without any truth honesty or loyalty in them as being false and treacherous murderous and dishonest don ramon who at this moment was behaving as scurrilously as any man not absolutely born in the gutter could possibly do was only following the traditions of his race of his country and its tyrannical government therefore when greta wept he laughed when she murmured the little prayers which her father had taught her he felt nothing but irritation and unmeasured contempt he tried to silence the girl by loud shouts and peremptory commands when these were of no avail he threatened to call for assistance from his sergeant still the girl made no attempt either to move or to stem the flood of tears then don ramon called aloud hello there sergeant and receiving no answer he went to the door in order to reiterate his call from there his hand was on the latch when the door was suddenly opened from without so violently that don ramon was nearly thrown off his balance and would probably have measured his length on the floor but that he fell up against the table and remained there leaning against it with one hand in order to steady himself and turning a wrathful glance on the intruder by the mass he said peremptorily who is this malapert who but the words died on his lips the look of wrath in his eyes gave way to one of sudden terror he stared straight out before him at the sombre figure which had just crossed the threshold it was the tall figure of a man dressed in dark tightly fitting clothes wearing high boots to the top of his thighs a hood over his head and a mask of untanned leather on his face he was unarmed don ramon already a prey to that superstitious fear of the unknown and of the mysterious 
which characterized even the boldest of his country and of his race, felt all his arrogance giving way in the presence of this extraordinary apparition, which by the dim and flickering light of the lamp appeared to him to be preternaturally tall and strangely menacing in its grim attitude of silence. Thus a moment or two went by. The stranger now turned and carefully closed and locked the door behind him. Key in hand, he went up to the girl, Greta, who, no less terrified than her tormentor, was cowering in a corner of the room. "'Where is Katrine?' he asked quickly. Then, as the girl, almost paralyzed by fear, seemed quite unable to speak, he added more peremptorily, "'Pull yourself together, wench. Your life and Katrine's depend on your courage now. Where is she?' "'In—in in the cellar, I think,' stammered Greta, almost inaudibly, and making a brave effort to conquer her terror. "'Can you reach her without crossing the tap-room?' The girl nodded. "'Well, then, run to her at once. Don't stop to collect any of your belongings, except what money you have. Then go. Go at once. Have you a friend or relative in this city?' to whom you could go at this late hour. Again the girl nodded, and looked up more boldly this time. My father's sister, she whispered. Where does she live? At the sign of the merry beggars, in Dendermond. Then go to her at once, you and Katrine. You will be safe there for a while. If any further danger threatens you, or your kinsfolk, you shall be advised. In that case, you would have to leave the country. I shouldn't be afraid, murmured the girl. That's good, he concluded. Come, Greta. He turned back to the door, unlocked it, and let the girl slip out of the room. Then he relocked the door. While this brief colloquy had been going on, Don Ramon was making great efforts to recover his scattered wits and to steady his overstrung nerves. The superstitious fear which had gripped him by the throat yielded at first to another equally terrifying thought. The hood and mask suggested an emissary of the Inquisition, one of those silent, nameless beings who seemed to have the power of omnipresence, who glided through closed doors and barred windows, appeared suddenly in tavern, church, or street corner, and were invariably the precursors of arrest, torture chamber, and death. No man or woman, however high-born, however highly placed, however influential, or however poor and humble, was immune from the watchful eye of the Inquisition. A thoughtless word, a careless jest, or the mere denunciation of an enemy, and the accusation of treason, heresy, or rebellion was trumped up, and gibbet or fire claimed yet another victim. Don Ramon, a Spanish grandee, could not, of course, be denounced as a heretic, but he knew that the eyes of de Vargas were upon him, that he might be thought inportune or in the way now that other projects had been formed for Donna Lenora, and he also knew 
that de Vargas would as ruthlessly sweep him out of the way as he would a troublesome fly. Thus fear of real concrete danger had succeeded that of the supernatural, but now that the stranger moved and spoke kindly with Greta, the daughter of a heretic, it was evident that he was no spy of the Inquisition. He was either an avowed enemy who chose this theatrical manner of accomplishing a petty vengeance, or in actual fact that extraordinary creature who professed to be the special protector of the Prince of Orange, and whom popular superstition among the soldiery had nicknamed Leatherface. The latter was by far the most likely, and as the stranger, whoever he was, was unarmed, Don Ramon felt that he had no longer any cause for fear. Though his sword, in its scabbard, was lying on the table, his dagger was in his belt. With a quick movement he unsheathed it, and at the precise moment when the masked man had his back to him, in order to relock the door, Don Ramon, dagger in hand, made a swift and sudden dash for him. But the stranger had felt, rather than seen or heard, the danger which threatened him. As quick as any feline creature, he turned on his assailant and gripped his upraised hand by the wrist with such a vice-like grip that Don Ramon uttered a cry of rage and pain. His fingers opened out nervelessly, and the dagger fell with a clatter to the ground. Then the two men closed with one another. It was a fight, each for the other's throat, a savage, primitive fight, man against man, with no weapon save sinewy hands, hatred, and the primeval instinct to kill. The masked man was by far the more powerful and the more cool. Within a very few moments he had Don Ramon down on his knees, his own strong hands gripping the other's throat. The Spaniard felt that he was doomed. He, of that race which was sending thousands of innocent and defenseless creatures to a hideous death, he, who had so often and so mercilessly lent a hand to outrage, to pillage, and to murder, who but a few moments ago was condemning two helpless girls to insults and outrage worse than death, was in his turn a defenseless atom in the hands of a justiciary. The breath was being squeezed out of his body, his limbs felt inert and stiff, his mind became clouded over as by a crimson mist. He tried to call for help, but the cry died in his throat, and through the mist, which gradually obscured his vision, he could still see the silhouette of that closely hooded head and a pair of eyes shining down on him through the holes of the leather mask. Let me go, miscreant, he gasped, as for one moment the grip on his throat seemed to relax. By heaven, you shall suffer for this outrage. Tis you will suffer, said the other coldly, even as you would have made two helpless and innocent women suffer. They shall suffer yet, cried Don Ramon, with a blasphemous oath. They and their kith and kin, I 
and this accursed city which hath given you shelter, assassin, and it is because you are such an abominable cur, came a voice relentlessly from behind the leather mask, because you would hunt two unfortunates down, them and their kith and kin, and the city that gave them shelter, that you are too vile to live, and that I mean to kill you, like I would any pestilential beast that befouled God's earth. So make your peace with your Creator now, for you are about to meet him face to face, laden with the heavy burden of your infamies. In Don Ramon now only one instinct remained paramount, the instinct of a final effort for self-defense. When he fell, his knee came in contact with the dagger which he had dropped. It cost him a terrible effort, but nevertheless he succeeded in groping for it with his right hand and in seizing it. Another moment of violent struggle for freedom, another convulsive movement, and he had lifted the dagger. He struck with ferocious vigor at his powerful opponent and inflicted a gashing wound upon his left arm. The dagger penetrated to the bone, cutting flesh and muscle through from wrist to elbow. But even as he struck, he knew that it was too late. He had not even the strength to renew the effort. The next moment the vice-like grip tightened round his throat with merciless power. He could neither cry for help nor yet for mercy, nor were his struggles heard beyond these four narrow walls. The soldiers whom he himself had bidden to be merry and to carouse were singing and shouting at the top of their voice, and heard neither his struggles nor his cries. The dagger had long since slipped out of his hand, and at last he fell backwards, striking his head against the leg of the table as he fell. In the tap-room the soldiers had soon got tired of waiting for Katrine. At first some of them amused themselves by reopening the trap-door, then sitting on the top step of the ladder that led to the cellar, and thence shouting ribald oaths, coarse jests, and blasphemies for the benefit of the unfortunate girl down below. But after a time this entertainment also palled, and a council was held as to who should go down and fetch the girl. The cellar was vastly tempting in itself, with no one to guard it save a couple of wenches, and the captain more than half inclined to be lenient toward a real bout of drunkenness. It was an opportunity not to be missed. Strange that the idea had not occurred to seven thirsty men before. Now the provost declared that he would go down first, others could follow him in turn, but two must always remain in the taproom in case the captain called. Their comrades would supply them with wine from below. The provost descended, candle in hand, so did four of the men, but Katrine was no longer in the cellar. They hunted for her for a while and discovered a window the shaft of which sloped upwards to a yard at the back of the house. The window was open, 
and there was a ladder resting against the wall of the shaft. The men swore a little, then went back to investigate the casks of wine. With what happened in the cellar, after that, this chronicle hath no concern, but those soldiers who remained up in the tap-room had a curious experience, which their befuddled brains did not at first take in altogether. What happened was this. The door which gave on the passage was opened, and a man appeared under the lintel. He was dressed in somber, tight-fitting doublet and hose, with high boots, reaching well above his knees. He had a hood over his head and a mask on his face. The soldiers stared at him with wide-open, somewhat dimmed eyes. The masked man only spoke a few words. Tell your provost, he said, that Signor Captain Don Ramon de Linea lies dead in the room yonder. Then he disappeared as quietly as he had come. End of chapter 4